Welcome to the podcast, A Colored Girl Speaks, meditations on race and other magical things, a collection of personal essays on race, culture, and politics through the prism of identity, memory, and history, an intimate and often painful commentary on race in America and the way forward. Essays are by Andrea Hunter and are narrated by Tierra Moore. So, at last, this colored girl speaks. Episode 10, God Chooses Only the Best. On Valentine's Day, 1974, my cousin, Beverly, was shot by a passing car just two-tenths of a mile away from South Dade High. She died 17 hours later, only months past her 16th birthday. More than 40 years past her death, the now sepia-toned copies of the issue of the newsletter that announced my cousin's murder remained among my Aunt Fanny's menagerie of artifacts. A front-page story, her name, Beverly Marie Ferguson, was in large, bold font, and underneath... God only chooses the best. A quote taken from the eulogy, not yet delivered. She was a beauty. Her photograph appeared above the newspaper fold and compelled the reader to take in her life and death. There was no forced smile. It was as if, while she was deciding how to pose, the photographer, moved by the natural beauty of the moment, captured it. My mother bought multiple copies of the paper to be kept in remembrance. I read what was written, we all did, and onto my cousin's still-life photograph, I animated my memories of her. And I would come to understand this was a public death, harbinger to a promise, and its failures. I felt pride that she belonged to us, not just to our family, but to us as a people, and shame too, because it was not grief alone, I felt. I had sat in the living room of plastered walls as my aunt, her mother, was possessed by grief, and with tears spent, left only a guttural moan. The depth of her sorrow moved through the walls and was manifest as if it was its own being. No one and nothing could console her. The black leather purse, stylish as was my cousin, had been with her at the shooting, lay plopped over as if no life was left in it, with flakes of red barely visible, and her baton, a witness too, nearby caught the light. Both were silent, knowing what we had no answers for. Beverly was a beautiful young woman, the kind 13-year-old girls like me wished of becoming. But still, a girl herself, often caught with thumb in mouth, and her almond eyes were at once sophisticated and childlike. It is through the photographed faces of childhood I see her now, with hair in three thick ponies, and as she grew older, a bang, sometimes with a pink sponge roller. And as she stood around a table with my birthday cake atop, or posed, with the brood of Davis' grandchildren. 
I do not linger too long because I know what is to become of her. As not to foretell her death, I move quickly. I do not want the girl captured there to know what I do. No one was ever brought to justice for her murder. And after so many decades passed, in my memory, her death had become separated from its cause. The reading of Timothy Tyson's Blood Done Sign My Name, a story of coming of age, and a 1971 racially motivated killing in a small southern town, resurrected my cousin's murder. Tyson spoke to a time we all shared, but which I had not taken historical stock. And I began to think of my cousin's murder, how her death was publicly marked, and the alchemy of emotions I felt as tied to what was then. On that day in February, my cousin and her boyfriend stood near a grove in view of South Dade High, a place that five years earlier they never would have been. In 1969, 15 years after the Brown versus Board of Topeka decision, we were to fully integrate by district court order and the remaining all-black schools were to be discontinued as the apartheid in public education was dismantled in South Florida. Thrust together, black and white students battled over mascots, athletics, homecoming queen, cheerleaders, and majorettes, and came to blows over what was lost. Amidst the protests and counter-protests at South Dade, including a black effigy hung from the flagpole, the school board banned most Civil War symbols, the Confederate flag, the rebel Johnny Band uniforms, and the Dixie fight song, and, by the time I arrived, a nondescript blog, the Big Blue, was mascot. The teachers and administrators themselves had no model for what this was to be. As they worked out their own landscape of integration, now that they were also proportionately represented by race in compliance with court order. None of this was spoken of in my cousin's shooting, but what was said of her in the newsletter signified the promise of school desegregation, a promise of belonging that said a black girl could be and was valuable too. A teacher described my cousin as an outstanding student, and that she was tall and stunning and could have been a model or anything else she wanted to do. Noted for a warm personality and smile. Not flip either. She had class, she said. Beverly had been selected to represent the high school at the district competition of DECA, and she would have made majorettes with no trouble at all, it was said, and I thought of her, the baton at her side. The pride I felt in reading this was a restoration of what had been given me when I was five, as I stood with cape and crown in white patent leather shoes, when I knew, but I no longer remembered in the same way, the worth of colored girls. There is shame in this, but not of my own making. Reverend Redden, a tall, dark-skinned, commanding preacher, was to preface the eulogy with two things, as reported by the newsleader. First, 
Speaking of the world, in these times we are living in, we are not safe in the school, home, or the church. And then a spiritual homily, even in tragedy, God chooses only the best. And she was a flower that God plucked on that day. I remember these words as he spoke them in eulogy. Having not been able to make sense of the spiritual calculus, they stayed with me. And on the day of my cousin's memorial services, there were two teachers to also offer remarks, one white and one black. Outside, the cameras searched for our despair, and inside was a dotting of white faces. It was as if in the cruelty of this moment, or maybe it was a redemptive one, they had found themselves in a sanctuary where we, black folk, were most human, most ourselves. I could not decipher their faces, and soon I gave up looking, concluding, maybe this is how white people are when they are sad, and not where they have always been. The young, teenagers, overwhelmed the small church, stood and sat in a bewildered grief. This was not how it was supposed to be. Nothing was said of any of this, and my family joined back together for the repast. But the joyful celebration of life and the stories that accompanied the death of the old was muted, as there is more emptiness in contemplating what might have been than knowing what was. I wonder now if on that street between a grove and a farm field, my cousin and her boyfriend, who once would have been out of place, felt safe. They must have. The school was in sight after all. Homeroom was just minutes away, and they belonged here too, brown faces and all. With all those years now past, I ask what was unthinkable then. What if my cousin was a fatality in a war not of her making, and was unaware she and all of us stood on the front lines? But it was 1974. Young, beautiful black girls with an ease of personality and a warm smile were not surreptitiously murdered by the shots of passing cars. Those days were over and yet to come. This brings us to the end of this episode of A Colored Girl Speaks, Meditations on Race and Other Magical Things. Your time, the listen, and your engagement are most appreciated. To connect with the essayists and a broader community of listeners, please visit the website andreahunter.com or connect with us on Twitter, A Colored Girl Speaks, at I am Andrea Hunter. 
and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Spotify. Until we gather again, share your stories and meditations and ask for those stories not yet given. Mm-hmm.